Good evening, this is Rob McClure and Vicki Iden bringing you your local news live from the WORT studios on Bedford Street in downtown Madison. Here are the headlines for this evening. On the off chance you haven't yet heard, South Central Wisconsin is currently under a tornado watch. A number of radar-indicated or confirmed tornadoes have raked northeastward across areas to our west over the past two hours, including through parts of Juneau, Sauk, and Richland counties. Severe storms along and ahead of a cold front will move eastward through the area throughout the evening. Tornadoes and large hail of up to two inches or greater in diameter and damaging winds above 70 miles per hour are all possible. Meanwhile, the heat index climbed up to 103 degrees today. A heat advisory is still in effect until 8 p.m. tonight. More on this in the weather segment later in the broadcast. Indeed. Even as we look ahead to additional storms, though, tonight some residents are still recovering from the storms we had on Monday. MG&E reports that as of late this afternoon, 861 customers throughout Madison and Middleton are still without power. More than 23,500 customers have had their power restored. Due to the extent of the storm damage, crews are still working to address approximately 190 incidents and to develop accurate estimated restoration times for customers who are still without power. MG&E says this number of separate outages is rare and it hasn't seen such significant damage for more than three decades. And turning to political news in Wisconsin today, Tim Mickles, uh, Trump's endorsed candidate for Wisconsin governor, is opposed to same-sex marriage and believes, quote, marriage should be between a man and a woman. That's according to reporting from the Associated Press. In an earlier electoral race, Mickles had said that he supports a constitutional amendment banning same-sex marriages. His Republican opponents, Rebecca Clayfish and Kevin Nicholson, have said they support same-sex marriage rights. And now for today's COVID numbers. There were 1,694 new confirmed COVID cases in Wisconsin today. Yesterday, excuse me. With an average of 1,471 cases every day over the past week. Additionally, 11.7% of all tests have come back positive over the past week. Yesterday saw... Also, uh, eight new deaths from the virus here in Wisconsin, bringing the state to a total of 13,075 people who have died from the virus since the start of the pandemic. Here in Dane County, there were two, three, pardon me, 235 new COVID cases yesterday as 63 people remained hospitalized from the virus. There was also one new death from the virus in Dane County yesterday. And now on to the rest of the day's top stories. Earlier this week, Republican lawmakers announced that they will allow proposed PFAS standards and regulations to go forward. But a new health advisory set by the Federal Environmental Protection Agency says that even those regulations may not be enough. WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt has more. 
The Federal Environmental Protection Agency, or EPA, announced new drinking water health advisories for PFAS chemicals today. This comes just two days after Republican state lawmakers announced that they will allow some regulations on the chemical here in Wisconsin. PFAS, otherwise known as forever chemicals, are found in products such as firefighting foam and nonstick pans. These chemicals can cause a slew of health issues, such as developmental issues in children, decreased fertility, and an increased risk for some cancers. PFAS has been found in all of Madison's wells to varying degrees. Well 15 on Madison's north side has been shut down for years due to high level of PFAS as city leaders wait for acceptable drinking water levels to take effect in the state. On Monday, the Republican-controlled Rules Committee announced that they will allow statewide regulations on PFAS chemicals to go into effect. The regulations would set acceptable standards for PFAS contamination in drinking water. Earlier this year, the Conservative Majority Natural Resources Board approved standards for surface water of 20 parts per trillion, but rejected a similar standard for state groundwater. Ultimately, the board approved standards at the EPA-recommended level of the time of 70 parts per trillion for our groundwater. But even with the news that PFAS can be regulated, not everyone is happy. That includes Democratic Senator Melissa Agard of Madison, who believes that state lawmakers can do more to address the issue. In Wisconsin, we certainly have the capacity to be a leader and create a gold standard for water quality in our nation. But instead, we continue to fall short. In essence, while I'm glad to see that Republican legislatures here in Wisconsin are finally admitting to the fact that we need to do something to address PFAS contamination in our state, I also acknowledge that we have farther to go in this conversation. And I'm hopeful that folks, regardless of party affiliation, can come together and work in earnest with the best science that's available to us and the best leadership to address water quality for everyone in Wisconsin. Then today, the EPA announced new, more stringent guidelines for PFAS contamination. Those standards have a lower threshold for designating PFAS contamination than the standards approved by the State Natural Resources Board. The new health advisories from the EPA replaced those set in place by the agency in 2016, which warned of exposure over 70 parts per trillion in drinking water. Now, the EPA is vastly reducing that to just 0.004 parts per trillion for PFOA chemicals and 0.02 for PFOS chemicals. This is well below what is even detectable by the EPA at this time, and they say that action should be taken to address the chemicals as soon as they are detected. In 2021, all of Madison's 22 wells exceeded the level put in place by the health advisory. But new data still being processed suggests that now only about a third of the city's wells are above that threshold. That's according to Marcus Pearson with the Madison Water Utility, who says that although it's hard to accurately detect PFAS at those levels, 2022 data on PFAS in Madison shows a drastic reduction in PFAS levels. When the levels are so, 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 so low, as I, as I kind of alluded to, there's going to be drastic kind of um, variance because really all of those levels are undetectable and sometimes you might get a little detection. You know, it's, you know, not, not to... You know, it's not that simple, but, it, you know, pretty much all right. of those are, are at zero. But, you know, sometimes, in, you know, last year it might have registered and this year it might have not registered. WORT could not verify the new report as the numbers are not yet released.
These new federal advisories are not regulations. The EPA says that the advisories are to give guidance to federal, state, and local offices to develop their own solutions. Pearson says that nobody in the country can accurately detect those levels, meaning that while the advisory is useful, it will not result in any concrete change. Um, Again, these are usually shocking. They're usually very, very, very low uh, because it is an advisory. So it it definitely does its job of advising and and alerting, uh, letting us know that this is a a serious concern and an issue uh, to be addressed. However, you know, we don't plan on the actual MCLs being that low. Uh, They cannot be lower than detectable levels. Senator Agard says that this is just further proof that more can be done to address PFAS here in Wisconsin. There is new scientific information um, coming forward on a regular basis about the effects of PFAS on our environment and on um, the health and well-being of uh, Wisconsinites and our natural resources. And I think that we need to, I absolutely believe that we need to be focusing on science-based solutions and realizing that this is something that we're going to continue to learn more about as time goes by. Madison Water Utility will hold a public meeting on June 30th at the East Madison Community Center to discuss both Well 15 as well as the new EPA advisories. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. A new housing facility for veteran families celebrated its grand opening today. It aims to provide affordable housing and a sense of community for Madison's veterans and their families. Our reporter Reed Kamai braved the heat today to attend the ribbon cutting. This morning, community members gathered on East Washington Avenue, celebrating the opening of a nearly $19 million, 59-unit housing development for veterans. It's called the Valor on Washington. It sits atop Dry Hooch, a nonprofit space and coffee house dedicated to helping veterans heal. Homeward bound. Those were the words sung by a group of veterans ahead of the grand opening. Planning for the Valor on Washington began five years ago, and construction on the $18.9 million project was completed in October of 2021. Dane County and the City of Madison partnered with regional developer Gorman & Company for this project. Ted Matcom is the Wisconsin Market President of Gorman & Company. He spoke at the grand opening, saying the family-oriented setups of the units are what make this development stand out. There is no other uh, development in the country that is two and three bedrooms that is targeting veteran families. Each one of the units in this bedroom is built for families. There are no one bedroom units and they cater to these large veteran families. The complex is also made for lower income veteran families. 50 units are earmarked for families whose incomes are between 30 and 60% of the county median, which according to the U.S. Census is approximately $75,000. The other nine units have no income restriction. Dane County Executive Joe Parisi was on hand for the celebration. He spoke about the inspirations for this project. You know, while we look at this as for what it is, which is which is um, veterans-focused housing for vets and their families, this isn't just about the vets who are here. This is about our entire community, and this enriches our entire community. While we say thank you to our vets, allow them a, a place where they can live and thrive and continue to contribute even more to the communities that they have served so well. 
Fernando Escobar is the commercial loan officer at the Wisconsin Housing and Economic Development Authority, or WIDA, another partner in the project. He laid out the importance of veterans' families having a safe place to live. Today we have the opportunity to help ensure our veterans and others have access to the safe, stable, and affordable housing they need. And, and I want to highlight that um, because, you know, it's, it's an important, critical part. You know, I think we've all been touched by service members, whether in our family or, you know, friends. And it's important that when they come back home, uh, they have a safe place. Ted Matcom tells WORT that support from the city and county was key to the project's success. The city of Madison, uh, Dane County, that was a great partnership. You don't see the city and the county partnering all that often. And this was this building uh, really is a great example of that. And uh, we're so fortunate that both of those governmental entities really came together and made this happen. Currently, only 60% of the leases are to veteran families. The other 40% will be prioritized for veteran families as these units become available. And when that time comes, thanks to today's ribbon cutting. One, two, three. There it is. <laughs> veterans and families will, in fact, be homeward bound. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Reed Kamai. The time is 6.19, and you're listening to the live local news on community radio station WORT. Wisconsin towns are known for their main streets and country roads, but those roads have seen some better days as both state aid and property tax income for the towns have been on the decline since 1990. That's according to a new report from the nonpartisan research organization, the Wisconsin Policy Forum, titled Budgets Get Tighter for Wisconsin Towns. The report shows how Wisconsin towns have been hit financially on all sides, meaning less money for road repairs. Earlier today, WORT producer Nate Weggehaupt spoke with Jason Stein, research director with the Wisconsin Policy Forum and lead author on the new report. This is just a portion of their conversation. You can hear the full interview online at wortfm.org. So, Jason, your report here, it looks at the finances of small towns here in Wisconsin, specifically when it comes to things like property taxes and state aid. So these are the two main ways that towns get their funding, correct? Yes, they, that accounts for the majority of towns' budgets, absolutely. And then what, and just sort of as a background here, what do what's the most common thing that these towns use this money for? Your report goes into, uh, you know, a couple of different things. But what is the most common thing that these towns need this money for? Sure. Well, towns are different from cities and villages in that they're they're limited under state law in what they can do. You know, some of the main things that they that they are involved in. Their biggest function is road repair and construction. So, you know, doing basic infrastructure in their, you know, typically it's rural areas, although, you know, you, you do have some urban towns. 
And then, um, you know, other major things that they, you know, they, they run elections and do other certain, you know, uh, town clerk type duties, they'll issue permits and they'll, um, you know, another major duty, uh, that many towns take on is fire and EMS service. So that's another area where they, they've seen some stress in recent years. And you mentioned that stress there. So the the title of your report, Budgets Get Tighter for Wisconsin's Towns, this sort of comes from a couple different ways. So let's start off with state aid. Now, your report sort of shows that state aid for towns is not really keeping up with inflation. And in fact, it seems like it seems to have dropped even if we don't include inflation there. What can you sort of tell me about that and how that's affecting towns? Sure. Well, I mean, I think the simplest way to think about it was in 1990, about a generation ago, property taxes made up about 37% of the town's revenues, core revenues, and state aid accounted for 45%. And by 2020, that had flipped. So property taxes made up, at that point, 48% of town's revenues and state aid only 30%. So you know, that's what we've really seen over time is although it hasn't been, you know, it has changed a little in recent years, but over the course of the last several decades, towns have become much more dependent on local property taxes and, you know, while receiving less of their overall budget from the state. And then you mentioned that their property taxes, other big way that towns get money. So they've been capped off here in Wisconsin as well. So what can you sort of tell me about that and what that what that means for the towns? Good question. So, yeah, it really does matter what happens with the property tax because almost half of towns, you know, the revenues that they rely on to provide services come from the property tax. In Wisconsin, local governments like towns cannot increase their property taxes by more than the percentage increase they get in their property values from new construction. And the reason that, so that's a pretty tight limit for all municipalities in Wisconsin. And generally they don't have construction levels that keep up with inflation, but that's particularly true for towns. If you think about, you know, many of the small uh, rural communities in the state, particularly up North, you know, many of those communities don't, have a lot of development or construction. And so, you know, they can be, you know, I think they averaged in the most recent year, you know, 1.2%. So that's, you know, well below the rate of inflation, even prior to, you know, inflation starting to really pick up. And now you mentioned it a little bit earlier, road spending is where a lot of this money will go to. And it's no secret that Wisconsin roads can get a little bit bumpy, especially after the winter, after all of the buckling there. So what have you seen with road spending here with small towns in Wisconsin? Sure. So, you know, in 1990, towns spent about 48 percent of their operating and capital spending on road maintenance and construction. So almost half by 2020, that percentage had dropped to 43%. And, you know, one of the big things that that rose within town budgets over that period was, was debt payments. So in some other research, we've also looked at, we've worked with uh, UW Milwaukee to model what the local road costs should be for communities of different sizes. And one thing that we noticed about very small towns in the state was that they seem to be much more than other communities falling short 
in their road spending of what we expected their um, the cost that they would need to spend to keep pace with um, their their needs and, and an overall decent quality road system. And, you know, one reason that does matter is that towns have roughly 60% of the roads in the state. So it's, you know, obviously in many cases there are rural roads and they're not, um, you know, traveled, you know, they're not in densely populated areas and they don't have the highest traffic levels, but they're still part of a statewide network that in some level we need to function. All right. And so, Jason, at the end of every report, you end with some conclusions and recommendations to policymakers. What what did you recommend with this report? Sure. Well, you know, and obviously we always put these forward as potential options. We don't advocate for any uh, specific course of action. But certainly one thing that we have noticed is that towns are increasingly struggling to provide certain services like fire and EMS. They've traditionally relied on volunteer firefighters or firefighters who are operate on a paid on call for only the hours that they work. And as their populations have aged and they get more call volumes, it's been harder for them to maintain services with those uh, volunteer staff. And so, you know, one thing that many towns are Um, exploring right now is using, you know, some kind of shared service model where they work with other surrounding communities to try and deliver some of these vital services to their residents. So that's one thing that that I think you're going to see a lot of towns explore. And one thing that may help them do that is they are receiving a significant amount of federal pandemic aid in recent, uh, you know, in both 20. 20 and uh, 2021. And so that's uh, a potential for the towns to, you know, draw on some of that money to uh, pay this, you know, the one time upfront costs of doing service sharing. And then, you know, last one other thing you may see from towns is there is significant money from the federal infrastructure bill for roads in the state, you know, road construction is a big function for towns. You know, one question, though, will be it takes a certain amount of uh, sophistication and uh, know-how to, you know, sort of get those grants. And there's also, you know, usually a local match that's got to be provided. So one question will be whether towns have both sort of the staffing capacity and the local financial wherewithal to be able to actually benefit from that that federal road money and infrastructure money and maybe address some of the needs that they have in their communities. I've been talking with Jason Stein, researcher with the nonpartisan Wisconsin Policy Forum and author of their newest report titled Budgets Get Tighter for Wisconsin Towns. You can read the full report online at wispolicyforum.org. Jason, thanks for coming on. Always a pleasure to have you. Thank you. The time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure, here with my co-host, Vicki Iden. Thanks for staying with us. 
Igloo coolers once claimed that nearly 75% of American households owned one of their products. With summer weather here to stay, Parks and Landmarks feature contributor Sean Bull examines the history of the cooler and how it exemplifies trends in American consumerism. You're listening to Parks and Landmarks, an exploration of the underrated outdoors. As I'm sure the segment after this will let you know, It was real hot today. We've had our warm spells already this year, but as of this week, summer is here to stay. When the temperature climbs, I'm thankful for any gear that can keep me enjoying the outdoors. In that spirit, I'd like to discuss today a bit of kit that's simultaneously overlooked, yet ubiquitous. The insulated cooler has existed commercially for 70 years. At a glance, it has remained much the same over that time, a box in which you keep ice, food, and drinks. But look closer, and you can see the subtle ways in which the cooler has changed. These changes reveal parallel changes in what we value as consumers and as Americans. To show you what I mean, let's go back to the beginning. People have been chilling food and drinks with ice for a long time. Centuries before the modern refrigerator was invented, people would store their perishables in insulated boxes, packed with ice. However, despite being basically the same technology, the icebox actually prevented the cooler from becoming a thing. You see, people used iceboxes because they couldn't make cold. The only option at the time was to harvest ice wherever it naturally occurred and store it insulated until it melted and was no longer of use. So in a time when ice, and therefore refrigeration, was a finite resource, chipping a bit off and carrying it out to a picnic would have been considered kind of wasteful. All this changed in the 20th century, with the proliferation of electricity in America. Advancements in refrigeration came quickly, and by the early 1940s, many households had fridges and freezers which we would recognize today. Ice was finally widely available, but then war broke out and distracted the world's inventors from the cooler's inevitable ascendance. The cooler's time finally came in the 50s. It's not clear who exactly invented it first, but the Australians put the first successful model to market, an insulated metal box with room for six beers and some accompanying food. They called it the Esky, and though they've stopped putting a cartoon Inuit on the label, the name has stuck around, both as a brand and as a catch-all name for a cooler down under. I don't know much about Australian history, but I can see why the cooler caught on in the US not long after. The 1950s were a time of great change in the States. The GI Bill sent record numbers of returning veterans to college, white people fled to the suburbs by the millions, and somewhat less seismic, but related to the topic at hand, Little League Baseball started to really take off. So, people had ice on hand, money to spend, and places to be, outdoors, far from any soda shops or bars. There was an obvious need for a device to transport refreshments and keep them, well, refreshing. The first coolers were much like the cars of the day, heavy and solid, with metal all over the place. But the 1950s was also a time of innovation in plastics, and as their production became more common, coolers adopted the new material to save on weight and cost. 
Over the next few decades, Americans grew to love big-box superstores, buildings with the shelf space to house every possible size and price point of every product on the market, and cooler selection expanded to match. After selling every size of cooler any reasonable person would want to buy, where could the market expand next? In the 90s and 2000s, kitsch was king. If your product had the right loud aesthetic, there was a market for it, somewhere. Oddball cars like the Hummer and PT Cruisers sold well. Themed restaurants like Bubba Gump Shrimp Company and the Rainforest Cafe swept the nation. Heck, the Wisconsin Dells theme parks we love today all blossomed out of this era. And riding the crest of this tacky wave was the Big Bobber floating cooler. The Big Bobber is exactly what it sounds like. A hollow sphere of red and white plastic, hinged in the middle, shaped like a foot-wide fishing bobber. It's worth pointing out, most coolers are floating coolers. The Big Bobber is not special in this way. But it is special in the reaction it elicits. It's big, it's silly, and I smile every time I see one. The polar opposite of the Big Bobber rose to prominence with modern social media. There have always been ways to be both outdoorsy and fashionable, but Instagram and YouTube influencers have taken this to another level. In the quest to portray an idealized lifestyle, social media has created a market for products whose form is just as important as function. This phenomenon has affected the cooler market in many ways, most spectacularly with the coolest. The coolest was meant to be better than other coolers. Get it? It was a large, rolling plastic cooler molded in a sharp, attractive profile. It was meant to be an all-in-one party station, including a built-in blender, battery, Bluetooth speaker, and device charger. In 2014, its creator posed it as the cooler of the future, and the internet agreed, forking over $13 million to make it happen. Then a year passed, then five, it turns out, it's really hard to start a manufacturing company. In the end, they weren't able to make enough, or make a profit. The company shut down in 2019 without delivering anything to 20,000 of its Kickstarter backers. Maybe the coolest approached innovation in the wrong way. In the same time frame, Yeti has become a juggernaut by making simple improvements. Better insulation more durable plastic, bear-proof latches. I could argue all day whether these things make a cooler worth $400, but the influencer crowd eats this stuff up. So, what's next? What does the future of coolers reflect about the future of our society? Hopefully, a new emphasis on sustainability. I haven't talked much yet about disposable coolers, because they haven't changed since the 50s. Styrofoam is a great insulator and cheap to make, but everyone knows it's terrible for the environment. Regardless, there hasn't been a better option until the last couple years. In addition to styrofoam, companies are now selling coolers made from wax and tree pulp. They look like cardboard and are completely biodegradable, but they totally work as coolers. Unlike, say, paper straws, they don't dissolve on contact with water, and can hold up to multiple uses. It's early in their product cycle, so they could have disadvantages we don't know about yet. But for now, 
I'm just excited to see companies still innovating. Okay, I think 8 minutes is all anyone needs. I'm going to end the segment, but if you'd like to talk more about coolers, especially the big bobber, please reach out to me at sean.bull at wardfm.org. Or, if you're as done with this topic as I suspect, suggest a different one. I promise I'm going back to parks and stuff next week. Tell me about your favorite underrated spot outdoors, or whatever you feel is related. Again, that's s-e-a-n dot b-u-l-l at w-o-r-t-f-m dot org. For W-O-R-T News, I'm Sean Bull. And it's time now for the most comprehensive weather report on the airwaves with W-O-R-T weather guru, Rob McClure. Well, if you look outside your window at the moment, you'll know why I get into weather so much. We've had quite an interesting few days, actually, the past three, and uh, the action doesn't seem to have ended quite yet. I've been tracking hook echoes on radar for much of this afternoon. And it looks like additional supercells are continuing to erupt down to our south and southwest, so more action is on the way up into the area if you haven't received any action yet. Uh, I'll get to the additional details of that in a moment, but uh, of course, as Sean Bull just observed, we just went through a heat wave the past couple of days. Caitlin Davis mentioned last night that we set a new high temperature record yesterday at 96. Uh, That was definitely at the high end of what we were expecting yesterday, and we hit 93 today, which tied the previous high temperature record. And uh, what about that spectacular and sudden storm that we saw on Monday that caused so much havoc? Uh, As it turned out, and as I speculated could conceivably happen on the Monday morning forecast, the incoming warm air that day approached the area just quickly enough Monday afternoon with the dew point hitting 70 around 2 p.m. to boost what was already a fairly strong going thunderstorm just to our northwest up to supercellular levels, or at least that's the way it appeared. There was a distinct hook echo with that storm on the radar sweep that preceded that strong wind burst that raked across the isthmus around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And the storm itself displayed that very distinctive uh, disjuncture between the deepening darkness under the updraft tower and the nearby adjacent region of clearing behind the cell where the rear flank downdraft was pushing in from the west. Uh, so very supercellular looking, or at least that's how I read what was going on from my second floor porch, basically, with uh, my laptop in my hand. Anyway, the action this afternoon has developed ahead of an incoming cold front in an environment in which there's tremendous amounts of upward-directed potential energy, given that we had and still do have near 90-degree temperatures even at this hour and upper 60s dew points. And a fair amount of both speed and directional wind shear overhead. One of the reasons we saw the widespread development of supercells and tornadoes today had to do with the backing of our surface winds to the southeast as an area of low pressure developed to our southwest along this incoming cold front. That low-level directional veering of winds from southeast down at the surface here up to, uh, to southwest about a mile or so above us That provides additional angular momentum of a type that's particularly associated with tornado production. The initial discrete supercells which formed out along the Mississippi River in mid-afternoon and spawned a clutch of tornadoes already out to our west 
have begun now to congeal their outflows and will eventually become more outflow driven as they race away from us to the northeast and that will pose a greater straight line wind threat in the eastern and northeastern parts of the state later on as we go through the evening but we could still see some spin-ups occurring as new cells pop up ahead of the uh, outflow and then uh, join the squall line as it's moving eastward. That's another common mechanism for tornadoes to spin up, though those are usually shorter lived than the ones that are produced by discrete supercells. And we have seen some cells popping up across uh, Dane County and other parts of the listening area over the past uh, just hour or so as this line begins to approach Madison. Last I looked out a few minutes ago, uh, the rains had not started yet downtown, but they've been going across the northwestern part of the uh, county so far, and of course through Sauk and Richland and Iowa counties already. We still have a few more cells popping up and moving northward down in the southern tier of counties in Rock and Lafayette counties. Those will move up into the Madison area shortly. So another hour or perhaps more of rain. This line is not very wide, perhaps 100 miles wide at its widest, maybe not even that wide. So it should move through the area in the next uh, hour or two, the way it's looking. Uh, So tonight, uh, thunderstorms will rumble into the Madison area and parts east. The cells themselves are moving northeastward at some speed. At 50 to 60 miles per hour has been common so far with these storms. So a lot of wind with them, and uh, we haven't had any severe reports recently in the local area. The only going tornado warning at this point is up to our northeast in Columbia County. Those uh, warnings are likely to uh, continue north and eastward away from us as we go on through the evening now. Uh, Temperatures will drop back to the uh, mid-60s later on after the uh, rains uh, move eastward on veering southwest to west winds at 5 to 10 miles per hour. Skies should generally have cleared by the time we get to dawn tomorrow. Tomorrow will be uh, breezy and noticeably drier and uh, somewhat cooler with temperatures still reaching the mid-80s but with dew points down in the upper 50s and Brisk westerly winds up at uh, 10 to 20 miles per hour during the day. Fairly gusty through the afternoon as well with uh, deep mixing tomorrow. Sky should remain uh, mostly clear with uh, little in the way of cumulus. Winds will uh, subside to about 5 to 10 miles per hour overnight with temperatures falling to the low 60s. Uh, Friday, another step cooler and drier and less windy that day with a high temperature in the 80 degree range uh, with veering northwesterly winds up at 5 to 10 miles per hour. We'll drop into the mid-50s overnight as uh, lighter winds veer easterly. Then we'll generally be clear again on Saturday with temperatures in the upper 70s and light easterly winds as uh, surface high pressure passes over. Uh, after it does pass, winds will be veering southerly again Sunday. That'll take us warmer that day up into the low 80s, and I think we're going to be back into the 90s again for Monday and Tuesday next week. At least that's the way it's looking. Uh, at the moment, and I'll give you one more view of what's happening on radar. The heaviest uh, cells, the most, uh, have the largest discrete supercells are down in Lafayette and uh, Greene County, it appears at the moment, moving northeastward. A uh, few more forming to the south in Illinois to move up into um, areas eastward from that towards Walworth County. 
And at the moment down here at the station, uh, we're about to see rainfall. Nothing yet, as I said, but 86 degrees still on the thermometer. The dew point temperature is 67. Uh, some passing low clouds beneath a deepening and darkening anvil. Quite impressively dark out to the northwest as I looked up the road. Uh, winds are out of the south at 18 miles per hour. Still gusting up towards 30. And the uh, barometer's at uh, 29.69 inches of mercury and unsteady. It's now 6.50 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. We go now to the third week of June in the 1960s to hear about civil rights activists celebrating Catholics, slugging center fielders, and more. Here's Stu Levitan with tonight's edition of Madison in the 60s. They melt into a dream Madison in the 60s, the third week of June, 1961. While civil rights activists from the University of Wisconsin risk life and liberty traveling through the Deep South as freedom riders seeking to integrate interstate bus travel, about 150 supporters of the Student Council on Civil Rights rally on the Library Mall, then march to the state capitol. They want Governor Gaylord Nelson to petition Mississippi Governor Ross Barnett to release former UW student James Wallstrom and other Freedom Riders jailed in his state. Nelson is away at a conference, but an aide to the Liberal Democrat tells the group the governor agrees with them and condemns the arrests. But the Daily Cardinal is not impressed by what it calls, quote, a harmless and purposeless parade and editorializes that, quote, Perhaps someday someone will really do what needs to be done instead of remaining content with childish publicity stunts. 1962. An overflow crowd at St. Raphael's Cathedral celebrates a high pontifical mass for the 50th anniversary of the ordination of the founding bishop of the Madison Diocese, the Most Reverend William P. O'Connor. The sacerdotal jubilee brings together the greatest array of Catholic prelates Madison has ever seen, including four cardinals, and is televised from the historic 1866 cathedral a block away from the capital. 1964. Slugging center fielder Rick Reichardt, a UW junior from Stevens Point, ends a baseball bidding war and signs with the Los Angeles Angels for an astronomical $205,000, twice what future Hall of Famer Willie Mays is making this year. The sum so stuns Major League Baseball that the league starts an amateur draft, making Reichardt the last of the baseball bonus babies. Much to note in 1965, two projects started by conservative former Mayor Henry Reynolds reach fruition under his liberal successor, Otto Feske. On the 21st, the new $2.2 million Central Library opens at 201 West Mifflin Street, with a formal dedication set for the 23rd. 
and final preparations are underway for the dedication of the Gay Braxton Apartments, the first new housing in the Triangle Urban Renewal Area, once the heart of the Greenbush neighborhood. The 60 units of public housing for the elderly, named for the late longtime director of Greenbush's neighborhood house, are Madison's first public housing unit since the Truex Apartments for Veterans were built in 1949. All of the initial tenants lived in the area which was torn down. Most of them expressed delight with their new accommodations, which were approved and funded under Mayor Reynolds. Madison's fifth public high school, under construction at Mineral Point and Gammon Roads, now has a name, James Madison Memorial High School. But the selection, which the school board approves on a 3-2 vote by secret ballot, is not without controversy. The Common Council, Madison Federation of Labor, and Fire Captain Ed Durkin all wanted the late President Kennedy to get the honor. Several citizens suggested famed Wisconsin naturalists. A group led by Capital Times reporter Irv Kreisman proposed John Muir, while Professor Hugh Hiltis and others counted with Aldo Leopold. Only one member of the public proposed paying tribute to the city's namesake and the country's fourth president, economic development activist Joseph W. Jackson, who had also prompted the 1963 renaming of Conklin Park on Lake Mendota for the same reason. Jackson was also one of the leading opponents to the Frank Lloyd Wright Monona Terrace Auditorium and Convention Center, which the city abandoned in 1962. School board member Ruth B. Doyle warns that the intended tribute will quickly fade, with three other high schools already having Madison in their names. She says the new school, quote, is bound to wind up being known as just memorial. Board member Arthur Diney Mansfield, longtime UW baseball coach, disagrees with the council and his distaff colleague. That argument is a lot of hokum, he says. The council, which controls the school board budget and bonding authority, is not happy with the vote. Fifteen aldermen, claiming to be acting only as, quote, citizens, taxpayers, and parents, write the board, urging it to reconsider, but the board stands by its decision. The fact that Madison owns slaves does not come up during the debate. 1965 also sees Madison streets turning so mean that police chief Wilbur Emery announces the return of two-man patrol cars, which his predecessor had discontinued in 1950. Emery explains it's, quote, for the safety of our officers and the protection of people involved at arrest scenes. Policemen are meeting more resistance in enforcing the law, he says, pointing to the March 19th melee on State Street, during which a gang beat patrolman Richard G. Osterlich so severely he was hospitalized. The reassignment of personnel will mean the elimination of evening walking beats on State Street, Capitol Square, the East Wilson Railroad area, and the Atwood Business District. A new era in jurisprudence begins as attorney James E. Doyle Sr. is sworn in as the federal judge for the Western District of Wisconsin. Doyle, a founder of the modern Democratic Party of Wisconsin, is married to former state representative and current school board member Ruth Bockaber Doyle. And an era in train travel ends when the Chicago and Northwestern Railway suspends use of its historic Blair Street Depot, built in 1910 for a quarter million dollars, and shifts to a new facility out East Johnson Street. A week later, Madison Gas and Electric announces it has paid $390,000 for the depot and adjoining property, which it will use for offices, storage, and propane production. In 1968, 
Mayor Otto Feske's effort to enact a modest gun registration ordinance in the wake of the assassination of Senator Robert F. Kennedy falters at the city council. Among those voting against the mayor's measure are the two deputy sheriffs, the former city policeman, and the assistant district attorney, all now serving on the council. Then the council reconsiders and refers the entire matter to a special committee to be appointed by Feske. And in 1969, the first issue of Madison Kaleidoscope, Madison's second underground newspaper, is published. The weekly paper is edited by Dave Wagner, poetry editor for the state's first underground paper, Connections. Wagner says the paper's purpose is, quote, to create a critical consciousness of life and culture in Madison and work for radical change. And that's this week's Madison in the 60s. For your award-winning, listener-supported WRT News team, I'm Stu Levitan. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. A brief update on the weather before we go. Right after I got off the air, one of those approaching cells from the south mashed into the squall line. And sure enough, we have a severe thunderstorm warning for Dane County. That should be going for the next uh, period of time. So uh, warnings for... uh, 70 mile per hour winds and other hazards including hail so do take note of that your headline writer this evening was david aarons your reporter was reed Kamai. special thanks to feature contributors sean bull and Stu levitan chuck kateman is the engineer this evening and nate weggie helped produce the newscast Shelly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Robert McClure. And I'm your host, Vicki Iden. Stay up to date with the WORT local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Query, followed by This Way Out. Have a good night and stay safe out there.